Hello, and welcome back to the Be Well, Do Well podcast. I'm excited to have a conversation today with another remarkable entrepreneur who is a self-proclaimed attention activist, and I absolutely love that title. Javid Yarthi is the founder of Still Ape, the world's first design studio that focuses on mindfulness, compassion, and well-being. Jay is also a mindfulness coach, helping everyday people improve their relationship with technology. I'm excited to get started, and it's really good to see you, Jay. Good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So. You have multiple identities, and I love that you're a father, you're a mindfulness coach, and also an entrepreneur. And we're going to get into the entrepreneurship part later. But I'm curious, how did you get started with mindfulness? I think the first step would be that my parents immigrated from India, and the idea of like closing your eyes, meditating wasn't a foreign concept to me. It's something I saw my parents do a lot, and also visited Hindu temples and Saw many of the rites and rituals that can be intimidating for others. It was just sort of a non-issue. In fact, it more felt like a part of my heritage. I think that was one thing that in some ways laid the foundation. I was always kind of curious about it and also very curious about mental health with like all of us, people in in the family who struggle with mental health issues makes you curious at a pretty young age. It wasn't until I started playing music that I started to kind of recognize, hey, like some of these feelings that I experience when I play music for a long period of time, like experience intense concentration, two or three hour jam session with a few friends. And by the end of it, I'm excited and buzzing. I'm super focused. I can see differently. I feel elated. And I kind of recognize that as pure concentration. That started to get me curious about meditations with sound. And I found things like Nada Yoga and other mindful listening type practices kind of lit the spark. Uh, Then I started kind of looking into Hinduism and Buddhism in terms of their philosophy. And somewhere in that journey, I found it called Doing Time, Doing Vipassana, which is of a meditation teacher who brings 10 days of silent meditation to a high security prison in New Delhi, India. Mm-hmm. The documentary is mind-blowing. I think since then they've made a similar documentary in Alabama in a prison. I've seen that one as well. They are just unbelievable. You see people come to terms with horrible things they've done and hug each other in the prison as opposed to people that they were enemies. I started to talk about it. I started to share it with some of my friends and bandmates. I knew I wanted to go try that. I was aware that Vipassana retreats were around the world. And in fact, one of my bandmates who was really struggling and had more like availability in his schedule at the time, he heard me talk about it and just took off. And he came back to band practice a few weeks later. And I was just like blown away with what a transformation I'd seen in this guy. He was smoking and drinking all the time and always riddled with anxiety. And he just seemed so different. And I was, I need to go try this now. I'm the one who told him about it. That was the first retreat. I had a very profound experience in many ways. And I've been on many, many t- retreats of different styles and practiced many different styles since. But that's kind of the origin of it. That's amazing. I haven't yet experienced my first Sopasana retreat, which I hope to, but they get booked up very quickly, which I was, I guess, somewhat surprised, but not at the same time as there's such a need for this. Yeah, Vipassana is one of many styles. And I think one of the things that the Vipassana organization has done right is they've made it super accessible. They have centers everywhere. It's free by donation. They take care of incredible meals and room and board. And I have some things to say about the different kinds of teaching styles, but it's a really easy branching off point. If someone looks into it and feels like 
it might be a fit, I highly recommend going for it. But if it doesn't feel like a fit, there's many, many other options. One of the people I work with is a world-renowned neuroscientist, Dr. Richie Davidson, I involved with the Healthy Minds program. He likes to compare meditation to sports and he feels sad. And I do too, when you hear someone who played baseball once and then they're like, sports aren't for me. And they don't realize like there's so many different kinds of sports and so many different ways to play. Play competitive, you can play casual, you can play athletic sports, or you can do archery. There's so much mm-hmm. out there. So I think there's different paths for different people, but the person is certainly, they've done something pretty incredible with that organization. Yeah. I love that analogy with sports and meditation because we have a 10-year-old son and he says he doesn't like sports. He doesn't like anything to do with a ball. And as a result, he's decided he doesn't like sports. Yet when we go outside, we play badminton or we frisbee or anything like that. He just gets so into it and he's so excited. And you can see that fire light up in him. And that's a great analogy that there's not one type of meditation. There's many types of meditation and mindfulness practices. Yeah. How does your son feel about rubber pucks? <laughs> well, a little bit off topic, but we just started skating lessons. And oh, you know, I live in Northern Canada in Edmonton and skating and ice hockey is just a, it's an institution here. So every single child growing up here plays some form of ice hockey or a ball hockey or something like that. And we never did. We were more snowboarders and skiers. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, well, let's try skating lessons. And he got really excited about it. We said, okay, you know what? I can maybe do this. And I said, okay, maybe next month or next year, we'll add a stick to this. And then the rubber puck of <laughs> him, but... I think it'll take some time for him to get into that as a sport and realize that, hey, I'm actually playing a sport. Maybe it's just speed skating or whatever it might be. Yeah. And to bring it back to meditation, we can continue the analogy, right? Because mm-hmm. what you're doing with those skating lessons is kind of similar to what I experienced with my musical instruments, right? Mm-hmm. No, I was practicing meditation or know that there was some relationship to a two-hour jam session, but mm-hmm. I felt the skills and I was like, actually, I kind of really like this. It made me curious to learn more and to start reading some books. and eventually went on that first retreat through the path I shared earlier. And there was so much of the journey up until then that wasn't explicitly mindfulness or meditation. I recognize them in retrospect as the ingredients that stocked the pantry that was waiting for me when I was ready to start cooking. Now I'm just mixing metaphors. I love metaphors. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I think it's perfect. I mean, cooking and sports. Now, Some people think of meditation as being this really difficult thing. I saw a video of you online sitting on this platform and there was a waterfall around you. I mean, that looks beautiful and it looks really calming and serene. And that feels unattainable to some people. Mm -hmm. Well, it's too difficult. My space is too noisy or I've got young kids. We, you know, as parents, we know what it's like to have kids around us and they're tugging at us and pulling our attention. Is there a recommended or can you suggest a path to mindfulness for those that are really distracted and busy. could be from a parental side of it or just a busy entrepreneur. Yeah, let me first say that I was really uncomfortable on that waterfall when we started. And I've written a little bit about this. I felt the same way too, but I had to find my place there as well. I get it. And I think the answer to your question is also related to that. I really believe that there are sort of different paths for different people. People are very diverse. They have different life histories, they have different experiences, they have different philosophical backgrounds, they have different histories, even generational histories, they have cultural backgrounds. So the idea that there would be some kind of one answer to that question is something I've abandoned a long time ago. It's why I answered your question about Vipassana the same way. Well, there's lots of different ways, but I think that is my answer, which is you've got to try things. You've got to use the resources that you can find to try to look at different paths. 
But don't get discouraged when one idea doesn't resonate with you because you kind of have to find your flavor. And that flavor might change over time. I have one teacher who I think my most cherished meditation teachers in terms of the progress that he helped me make. But his approach is kind of not really relevant for me anymore. But it doesn't make me negative to him or feel bad or not recommend his work. It's just that I know personally he helped me get from one level to another. And now I'm simplifying down from that system. It's difficult to find the starting point. I think it's one of the problems. But if you want something you can chew on as an actionable starting point, I think one thing to recognize is like these apps are everywhere. There's like thousands of apps. And I would encourage people to sort of dive into the app world as a kind of taster. Like don't download a meditation app, download 12 meditation apps and set an intention to kind of try all 12 of them over the next month. Be judicious about which one you're going to continue with. There's no reason to force a fit. If it doesn't feel like it's a fit, get rid of it. Try something else. I think you'll probably find one of those 12 connects with you in a way that the others don't and just follow that instinct. There are definitely a lot of apps. I, I want to come back to the topic of apps and technology in a bit. You sure. said something here that reminded me of the fact that we all have seasons in our life, just as there are seasons throughout the year. When you said that teacher's method didn't resonate with you anymore. Was that a change in your external circumstance? Was it your evolution in your practice? What was it that made that not fit anymore with who you were as a person now? That's very difficult to answer. I apologize if it starts to sound a little cryptic. I'm talking about Shin Zen Yang. He's an American Zen Buddhist teacher who has developed an incredible system called Unified Mindfulness that sort of maps contemplative traditions in a sort of easy to use language and framework that allows you to really try different approaches in a quick and easy and understandable way. And I'm a big proponent of Shinzen's work. It's a little heady though. As a starting point, I don't know if I would have resonated with it because it's quite complex. I mentioned when I went to Vipassana, it was just pay attention to your breath. It was not easy, but it was simple. And eventually when I found Shinzen's work, it really exposed me to two things. One, the complete landscape of practices like sports out there, all the different kinds of practices out there. And the second thing is he really taught me that all paths are good and it all depends on who's taking them and what season of life you're in, and, you know, like not to be like, this is the right way and that's the wrong way. He's a big proponent of that and it really is inspiring. At some point, I started to understand his system very deeply and apply it. And I was sort of getting lost in these head games of technique. He kind of led me to this cliff where I sort of had to make the decision to jump off it, Mm. which is to say, let go of conceptual mind. It was almost like all of these concepts had become internalized now. I didn't have to think about them so much anymore. I had to just practice them. And when I did that, it was actually a very difficult transition. And I did this on retreat. I was with my wife at the monastic academy in Vermont on a two-month retreat. There was a lot of silent practice. And at some point it was like, there was a good 48 hours of like really dark places that came up because it was sort of like, if these concepts kind of revealed themselves as meaningless to me, all my other concepts started revealing themselves as meaningless, which was actually kind of a grieving process. On the other end, I came out with a lot of love and kindness and compassion, but it was a really hard transition. And as I came out of that, not too long after that, we had our first child, I became a dad and my life started to get really busy. And that really kind of calcified this idea of letting go and practicing in a more effortless way. That's kind of where I am now. 
I still have a ton of understanding and respect. And in fact, when I guide meditation, I'm often thinking about that system among some others that I've trained in. But when I actually sit and practice this morning, it was a lot less conceptual, a lot more effortless in the here and now. But I know in my heart that I'm relying on the training that I did within these conceptual systems to be that comfortable and aware in an effortless state. So again, sorry if that got cryptic, but you asked. <laughs> I take away a few things from that is that what you learn initially may not work for you because you've outgrown that or you've internalized it and it just becomes automatic. It becomes habit. The second thing I really got out of that was that whatever works for you at that moment is what's right. The big takeaway I got from that is that you don't have to necessarily stay with it. You can change. You can go to a different thing. And if it feels difficult, well, there's other options. There's other paths to cross. The idea of the grieving process and letting go of that, then being able to go further from that, that actually reminds me of Windows 3.1 where they had the defrag tool and you push the button and all of the dots, they're all mixed up colors. It represents your hard drive. Then one at a time, the colors all get rearranged into a nice pattern and then the rest of it is left there. That's the first thing that came to mind when you said the grieving process of just letting that go. And then you came back a lot more mindful, a lot more kind and compassionate. And you defragged and then you came back. Was it fair to say that that's how you felt is that your mind was just a little bit easier to manage? I do remember the defrag. <laughs> it was very satisfying. Whoever designed yeah. that graphic really helped something that could feel very technical. I didn't know what was happening. And I was like, this feels like it's... Yes. Wait, that's my designer identity, as you mentioned earlier. I actually, like, if we want to use Windows 3.1 as a metaphor, it's sort of like I turned on my computer that morning and Windows 3.1 had just been deleted. So that was where the grief comes from. Like, defried felt, this didn't feel good. This okay. felt like something that I had relied on. My identity, my emotional stability, my general well-being felt like it was relying on these cornerstones of who Jay is. And who my friends are and who my family is and what the world is and what my place in the world is. All these fundamental concepts of the operating system, that's to right. continue the metaphor, yeah. that I, were totally the way I was interacting with the world, i.e. interacting with the computer, mm -hmm. was just like gone. It was all error. It was all like, this isn't real. So what's left? And that was extremely painful. But on the other end of it, I'm so grateful to have Windows 3.1 because otherwise... I literally have no way to do anything with this mind and body and world, even though they are kind of illusory and not really there. It was a very difficult 48 hours. I'm glad I got to the other side of it because those concepts started to come back and reify themselves as illusions, but meaningful, important, and beautiful illusions that make up everything I enjoy about life. And I want to touch on one thing you said earlier, which is, I totally agree with your two takeaways there, but I'm going to add a caveat to the second one about how there's many different approaches and if things get difficult, you move on. So this is actually like a really fine point that like anything, a certain amount of struggle can be actually very mm. productive. So you want to be careful not just looking for the meditations that are the most fun and engaging. Otherwise, you end up doing what most of our society has done, which is conflating happiness with pleasure. Mm. conflating meditation with relaxation. But in fact, meditation and mindfulness is about piercing clarity. And as the, the experience I had on that retreat reifies, like piercing clarity can sometimes be extremely painful. And you don't want to do that if it's going to overwhelm you. But there is a certain amount of struggle and challenge if you're ready for it 
where you can find that flow between your ability and the challenge you put in front of yourself and actually make significant progress. Another one of my teachers has a really nice spatial metaphor for this, which is like, if you're, I don't know, for those who are watching the video can see my hands, but I'll describe it as well, which is like, if you're on the surface and this meditation practice is moving you deeper and deeper into something kind of core and essential, it's really easy when you're on that way to kind of get distracted and start moving horizontally, right? So you're like, ooh, like shiny object. Ooh, right. relaxation feels good. Oh, this feels really nice. I feel like I'm getting into some blissed out zone. And then you can spend years just chasing this blissed out zone and you're not actually getting deeper to realize the bliss is an illusion too. And you're getting to core something like the core energy or the core source of experience, which is where you can find this boundless calm despite the waves on the surface. I'm not trying to say I've found that. I would say that at this point in my practice, having practiced 10, 15 years, I've tasted it. I know it's there. And my practice is in this stage of continually trying to stay connected to what I know is there. And sometimes I can't, and I have to just accept that. And sometimes I can, and that's all part of the up and down of the journey. So careful about that idea of just staying away from any challenge. Right. No, I like that. No, thank you for clarifying that and, and articulating it. It is true that it's difficult. Meditation is difficult. Mindfulness is difficult because our minds are not designed for that. And our environment doesn't enable it either. I was on an AMA call and Ask Me Anything call with the founder of Muse, Chris. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked a question about breathing. And, and I think you and him have talked before because you guys share that headiness in your head. <laughs> I mean, I was on the Muse team for four years. So we, we've talked right. quite, quite at like... That's amazing. And he said something about breathing and how when you're meditating, breath is one of the more basic methods in your breath. But if you're anticipating your next breath, you're not being mindful because now you're living in the future rather than just feeling your breath currently. And I think this is where meditation mindfulness be can become quite complicated and it can become very difficult. And I, I want to move into a little bit more of the technology side. I love the fact that you live in that intersection between mindfulness and technology, but from two different sides. One is that we're inundated with technology around us that makes us less mindful. And the other is that you develop and design technology to make you more mindful. I saw a picture of you. I'm not sure where you were, but you were sitting and there was a lot of speakers around you and you had some, I don't know what they were, but wires coming out of your forehead. I think this is, you mentioned Muse, but this is pre-Muse days. Can you talk a little bit about how biofeedback can help you in meditating and why music and why sound? Yeah. What's interesting about our body and our minds is that whatever mysterious reason, we have conscious access to some elements of our experience and we don't have conscious access to others. In fact, attention is a key mediator of this. For example, if I point you right now to draw attention to your feet, all of a sudden you sort of expanded your conscious awareness to this aspect of your experience. If you, you know, sit there for hours and pay attention to that, which I've done, you start to notice that you don't actually perceive your feet. You've just got a couple of sensations of pressure and they're in a sort of spatial location. Like you probably have a mental image of your feet coming in your kind of imagination, providing you're not actually looking at your feet right now. And so you start to see that there's this kind of blurry line between what you actually have, what you're actually perceiving in any moment versus like what is actually happening in the physical world. One way to think about biofeedback and neurofeedback is we're using these sensors to translate some element of 
who you are and who the world is and potentially other biological organisms or anything else into quote unquote, the visible spore into other senses, ways that you can more directly perceive them. I think what's interesting about sound to the second part of your question is that, you know, if you look at, I'm a really, you know, I know Marshall McLuhan isn't like, you know, he's sort of like a pop philosopher, but he was sort of the origin of like media philosophy. For those who don't know him, it's the guy who said the media is the, is the message. And one of the things that he wrote about is that since the printing press and the written word and writing, we've kind of calibrated our visual sense to be highly foveal, i.e. serialized and focused. Like you read one word after another, you look from one thing to another, your eyes are trained to operate in this conceptual realm. Sound hasn't quite evolved in that way, that you can hear me talking, you can hear the environment around you, you have full, spontaneous spatial awareness of multiple sounds at once. And there's a kind of non-conceptual element that sound can provide that's a little tougher to do in the visual realm. Mm -hmm. And so when I was working on this from an academic perspective, I was looking for some kind of immersive mindfulness experience, and I eventually landed on sensory or visual sensory deprivation, because I had sort of concluded with my research and experimentation that the visual sense is actually not that helpful. Since then, I've practiced visually and learned those skills. But for a beginner, it's actually quite challenging. Whereas music in our society often plays a role of calming us and being a non-conceptual force. Like you can put on that gentle jazz playlist and it puts you into that calm, productive coffee shop vibe, right? In this weird, ephemeral way. And so if you take that combination of biofeedback and sound, which I've done on a number of projects, including Sonic Cradle, which is the one you're referring to from that picture, as well as Muse, I did it there as well, you know, connecting these biofeedback sensors to well-designed sound experience, there seems to be this access point to a non-conceptual state of being. And I think that fundamentally is worth exploring in deeper and deeper ways. And there's lots of projects in the space now. When I was working on Sonic Cradle, it was sort of newer. There was a couple, a couple of precedents that I was able to cite. But in the past 10 years or so, it's really blown up because I think more and more people are recognizing both experientially, but also experts are recognizing that there might really be something here that can help us. And I think the success of Muse and other products in the area have really confirmed that. That's wonderful. I love using the Muse device. We were talking earlier and how I had my 285-day streak and then missed a day and now I'm starting and now I'm back again, right? Like, so I've done a week and, and continuing from there. But the, the idea of having that sound and clothing your eyes really solidifies that meditation practice for me is because if I had my eyes open, I can tell the sensors go off and, you know, the, the waves, the birds and all that sort of thing. But as soon as I close my eyes, then there's not that stimulation, the visual stimulation coming in. Yeah, there's a fundamental hardware limitation there with Muse. So I'm going to get wonky on you here. The electrical fields of your eyes are actually can disrupt the sensor. So if you open your eyes, okay. the, the data simply just gets a little noisy, which is why when okay. we were designing the experience and we were experimenting with those things, ultimately decided that it should be a closed eyes experience. That being said, in many traditions of meditation, you open your eyes, I'm looking at a tree out the window and I can meditate mindfully and watching the colors and the shape and the movement, the texture. There's no reason why you can't be mindful with your visual sense, in particular kind of nuance of brain sensors that makes that especially difficult, though not impossible. I think developments at Muse and elsewhere are starting to address that problem. But certainly almost 10 years ago when I was working on it, it was an insurmountable technical challenge. Interesting. I know 
from blinking and all that. There's lots of activity happening there, but it's almost like a good accident to happen <clears throat> where your eyes are closed. It just helps you focus a little bit better. And then eventually you can get more into the advanced side of meditating, like you said, with your eyes open. Yeah, I think so. That was sort of when we were thinking about the design for Muse, myself and Chris and Trevor and other Aria, other people on the team there. I didn't want to try to take credit or anything like it was a team effort. But when we were designing it, it's sort of like, how can we work, you know, like any design problem, how can we work with the constraints and the opportunities we have to create something? And I think what you described is kind of one of the synergies, because I think, especially in our busy, always connected world, I think it can be useful for beginners to practice with eyes closed. So it just kind of thankfully synergistically worked out with the limitations of the technology, became a clear design direction forward. This will be something, you know, that you close your eyes and you do a session. That's kind of the, the goal. I think, you know, the other thing to recognize is it's, you know, one of the interesting things about now that I'm thinking back to that year before we launched Muse and all the like experimentation we were doing. I think the other thing that was really interesting is that we tried really hard to make Muse normal. And what I mean by that is at the time, there were some EEG sensors that all felt really sci-fi, like the future of brain computer interfaces. And I remember kind of going around and like, you know, sharing with the team this vision that like, we don't want our product to be the quote unquote future of brain computer interfaces. We want it to be like a toothbrush. Like it's just something you can have in your bedroom and you can use as a part of your routine and you're not thinking or even cognizant of the fact that what you're actually doing is self-administering neurofeedback while performing mindfulness practice and tracking your data through a Bluetooth connected mobile app, you just want to be like, I'm doing my muse. I don't want it to be so cloudy today. I want the birds to come. And like, so that's where those metaphors and designs came because, you know, for, as the UX lead on the project, I was like surrounded by these really brilliant scientists and like design, like, you know, not designers, but like scientists and like product people that were like thinking about what this could mean for the future of technology. And I felt like my role on the team, like the position I was playing was like, yeah, that's all well and great, but how is this just like going to enter someone's bedroom and not feel like absolutely weird? <laughs> you know? I can, I can punctuate that with a quick anecdote, which is, I remember when I joined the team, I looked at the promo photos of the early hardware and there were photos of like you know, someone wearing the device, like at a Starbucks on an iPad. <laughs> and I remember just being like, this needs to like, the idea that someone would wear this in public maybe is in the future, but we're not there. It was like 2013. I'm like, we're not there now. Mm -hmm. And we need to really like change our photography to be people with their eyes closed in their bedroom, doing this in the privacy of their home. And that I sort of ended up writing some photography guidelines based on some user research to kind of guide the design process towards like a private eyes closed like thing that's like a part of your regular routine as opposed to some fancy new future of tech thing. I'm grateful that you did that because even now, I don't think wearing that in a Starbucks or out and about would feel natural or look natural. Though. And, and yeah. I think you've got the best job, first of all. I just have to say, like <laughs> the UX of mindfulness and combining technology and all that. But one thing confused me a little bit is that where did the name come from? Still Ape, the name of your company. There's got to be a story behind this. Where did the name Still Ape come from? Still Ape basically has a double meaning. And I'm actually kind of curious as to like what your guess might be about okay. what that, what that means, like what, what comes up for you, or maybe even just like what feeling comes up for you with it. Yeah. Great question. So when I first heard the, the word still, if I knew it had something to do with the monkey mind, that was the first thing that came to mind, monkey mind, busy and all that. 
but an ape and a monkey to me are very different. Ape is big, powerful, you know, beast, right? A big animal to tame it or to make it still and to sit still is difficult, but it also has this very like regal feeling to it and very noble. And I, I love the idea of mixing those two things together, the stillness part of it from the meditation and just being calm and settled. The ape is that something that we all feel like and are, but it's not just the monkey mind. It's that powerful being within us that we're, we're I don't want to say, I don't want to say taming, but we're noticing. Yeah, I think you, you nailed it. And I can put some articulation around both meanings. So mm -hmm. we are apes. That's sort of what we've evolved from. And there's something interesting about a lot of the mindfulness practices that have inspired me and well-being in general about the stillness that is a huge component of these practices because there's something kind of miraculous about sitting still. Mm -hmm. It's just not like there's no evolutionary, like you're not hunting for food, you're not looking for a mate. Like if you think about an ape, like if you think about yourself as an ape and you think about sitting still, there's something that really evokes conscious awareness because there's so much happening even though from the outside you're just sitting still there's so much happening in your mind and in your experience and so that's kind of one meaning which is that this idea that you know we need to sit still a little bit in our society we're just doing 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 we're filling our minds and our attention spans with all kinds of information and tasks and to-do lists and social media feeds and it's just like we need to sit still once in a while and i think that's something that meditation and mindfulness have taught me as an ape. I think the other part of it is kind of like the idea that we are still apes, that we're, you know, we have all this amazing technology. We've got satellites guiding us to the coffee shop and we've got interconnected collective hive mind where we're sharing pictures of our favorite kitties. You know, like it's, <laughs> you know, it's just, we're in this Great. complete different virtual reality compared to our ancestors. But fundamentally we're hitting some limits and those limits are defined by the fact that we're still embodied apes here, that we still have emotional limits. We still have cognitive limits that like with information overload, our ability to make meaning in the world is starting to break down, right? With, you know, constant access to social networks that are easy to send messages, we've got like constant potential bullying and canceling from high schools to the global geopolitical situation right? There's just, you can send a tweet and change geopolitics, like, right. and our bodies, like, aren't, like, it's so hard for everyone to even watch the news because we're still apes. Like, we can't handle daily stories about how the world is falling apart. And so there's, like, this meaning of, like, sitting still, being an ape sitting still, but there's also this meaning that, like, we think we're all above our bodies sometimes, but we are still apes and we still have those emotional and cognitive capacities that we need to take care of using these practices, like mindfulness, compassion, and well-being practices in general. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't think of the, that we are still apes, but yes, absolutely. And the, you mentioned about all of the different technologies, social media and all that, and the term hustle and grind is everywhere now. And that's become almost a badge of honor, sleep deprivation, exhaustion, you know, start, we mentioned Starbucks, not that we're, you know, that we're not promoting or, or dispromoting it, but that when you hear the term hustle and grind, what comes to, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? You know, I think of the, you know, I used to live in downtown Toronto and I think of that city center and, the, you know, being a kind of mindful person, like sometimes I like to take a walk. I have like, you know, a meeting and then an hour break and another meeting. And, you know, one of the practices we do in mindfulness circles sometimes is kind of like a mindful walk or 
you apply a technique, like it might be paying attention to your feet touching the ground or your breath while you take a kind of slow walk. I'm not sure if you've maybe seen people do this where they walk very slowly and intentionally. So you can kind of picture me, you know, sort of walking in clothes, not unlike these, just sort of walking down Bay Street in Toronto, taking my time and really noticing like how amazingly fast everyone's walking. Everyone's looking at their phone or engaged in like intense conversations. They're walking super fast. They're dressed to the nines. And I can see it on their faces. You can just see this wear and tear, this intensity. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it just sort of brings you that wonder of like, there's nothing wrong with it as long as these people are okay. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're starting to see in our society is a lot of people aren't okay. Right. And that's what comes up for me. Hustle Band is a very clear mental image, like some memories of kind of like taking some of those slow walks around downtown and just kind of feeling fish out of water a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's some personal, you know, I like to try to tell the story like I'm some like magic force there. Like, but, you know, I'm having identity crises as well because I was raised in this world and I'm like, should I be trying harder? Should I be dressing up and coming to Bay Street and making that money? Should I, you know, like all those self-doubts that start to come just from like seeing myself as kind of removed from that. And as I've gotten older and found more of my place, that sort of subsided, subsided a little bit. And I'm really glad that I've kind of made some of the choices that I've made to opt out of that because there was a time where I was totally caught up in that. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all kind of what pours out when I think about hustle and grind, like what that represents. Yeah. The, the term grind definitely like you described, right? That worn, tired, you know, almost exhausted look. I, we see that all the time and it's, it is really sad. And I'm actually happy that people like you are doing what you're doing to introduce mindfulness to more people in the last, I would say 10 years. I think mindfulness has almost become mainstream now. Yoga was always there, but mindfulness, you hear that term everywhere. People are aware of it. They're familiar with it, which is wonderful. Mental health is one of the areas I, as entrepreneurs, you and I both, I'm sure we've suffered from it. I speak for myself, but mental health has always been a challenge, right? You have that anxiety, you've got the high highs and the low lows. And for me, meditation has been one of the things that I use to, to help with that. Is there anything other than meditation that you do to help with mental health? Yeah, I think it's a, you know, I think it's an interconnected system of everything from trying to balance nutritional elements like caffeine and, you know, trying to find the right uh, balance that don't always succeed at that, but trying. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, physical, physiological health is essential. Right. And, you know, I'm trying my best, yoga and running and things like that. I think it's a big balance with the meditation practice, of course, as well. I also think like the distinction between formal and informal meditation is kind of essential. There's me sitting up there for 20, 30 minutes, you know, and practicing, but then there's like applying it in this moment. Like, you know, even on this call at some point, I've been looking at the tree up here and just using that to ground me in the midst of this conversation before I get too excited. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I also think it's been a really big, as someone who lives at the intersection with technology and who's worked to design technology and also been on long meditation retreat, I think I've become extremely passionate about in my own life the lives of my family, as well as, you know, helping others form healthier relationships with technology, drawing boundaries, working on healthy habits to cultivate the space required to be calm. And a lot of people will like, you know, meditate for five minutes and be like, this is too hard. And, you know, it might actually be too hard because what are you doing the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of the day? Are you sleeping enough? Are you eating well? Yeah. Are you just lost in Instagram? And 
training your mind for 99% of the day to be frantic and constantly context switching and then expecting those five minutes to just be calm, it's a, it's a closed system. So I think like having all those components in order to bring things back down to earth is the prerequisite, I think. And so those are all relevant, I'd say. And also there was a time where, you know, I first found meditation and I thought everyone in the world should meditate. This is incredible because it's transforming my life. And then there was a kind of point of humility where I was like, wait a minute, that's kind of too hubris. Like not everyone, need, like it worked for me, but maybe different things. So maybe not everyone needs to meditate. You know, I should be a little more, more gentle about that. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, most people probably could benefit from meditation. Like it's not everyone, but I'd say most people. Yeah. But any practice that promotes some kind of intentional mindfulness, I think could be beneficial. But for some people that might be journaling, it might mm. be, you know, therapy, et cetera. And I also want to just shout out that like, sometimes these conditions, like you mentioned, anxiety, you know, medication is not to be shunned. I think mm -hmm. there is some incredible groundbreaking medications out there and we shouldn't just like abandon science. That's a huge part of it. Right. The only issue is that the traditional it's broken, fix it, you know, healthcare model from our physical health just doesn't really apply to the complex system I've described around mental health. Like I like to say that, you know, I wonder how many mental health conditions that show up in the clinic, you know, could be solved with routine exercise, nutrition, you know what I mean? Before we get into prescribing, but that's not to say that prescriptions aren't incredibly helpful as well. So I think it's, you got to find your combination and you got to practice kind of all of it, but it can be overwhelming. It all starts with one step. It all starts with one breath. And I think just starting where you are is also an essential part. Yeah, very well articulated. And, and it's nice to hear the well-roundedness of that, of that approach. Is there anything that people would be surprised to learn about you? We've learned a lot about the mindfulness, the tech, the entrepreneur. Is there anything about you that would surprise somebody? Hmm. I think, you know, we're talking about these multiple identities and I've got a few and, you know, there's this like tech, Hey, he's designing technology and he's practicing meditation, but like, uh, and I think clearly in our conversation, I'm sure you and others can gather how passionate I am about mindfulness, right. but I'm also super passionate about technology. I love technology. And I think that's a misconception that someone like me might like be anti-tech. Like I grew up playing video games. I love tech. I think it's amazing. I just draw boundaries on letting it affect my mental health. And I think it's important for all of us to do so. But when I can intentionally watch a great TV show or recently, you know, I never used Instagram until this month and yeah. I just created it. I created an account just as, as an experiment. And I said to myself, if this becomes unintentional, if I start to become habitual, I'm just going to delete it. Mm. But I specifically wanted to find a place for kind of my musician identity to live. Okay. So I created an Instagram and I started to explore it. And like the first week was really profound because I haven't been on that kind of personal social media in a long time. And all these names and old friends came mm. up that I haven't seen in a long time and I could see their lives and it was really heartwarming. But then I started to share on it and the algorithm figured out that I love music and then started promoting all these videos of incredible musicians. I started to feel shame. Uh, of like, wow, there are some amazing people out there. I am not a great musician. I'm not good enough at this. Like, who am I to be making this account and trying to share a song or two? And then like, thanks to my mindful practice, I was able to see that for what it was and just say, you know what? Forget that. I'm just going to, I'm not 21 and trying to be a famous musician anymore. I'm like, 
this is something I love to do and I'm just going to share it with whoever, whoever will listen. But I experienced that. And so same with video games. Like I think some video games can be really addictive, but there are some amazing works of art in the field of video games, some that are even informed by mindfulness. And so I think that's maybe a misconception. You hear someone like me talk and you think mm -hmm. that I'm like living on a mountain with everything tied away, but I still love technology. I love the potential of it. I just don't think we've lived up to the promise of what's possible. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do is trying to find a way that technology can be more harmonious with who we want it, who we want to become, not just our momentary urges in the moment. Interesting. If you, if you decide to change the name of your company, you could always go with something like the mindful geek. That's the <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> that's a great book. I think, I think Michael Taft has a book called the mindful geek. Oh, does he? Okay. <laughs> I might've had that wrong. I don't know if I have that right. But, that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Well, this has been fun, Jay. I really appreciate this. And it's been interesting to hear about your experience and how you've gotten to where you are today, the background of your technology experience, your mindfulness. And I'm sure the listeners will also get a lot out of this as well. I, I know I have definitely. Thank you for the insightful questions. I really appreciate that. And to anyone who's listening, take a nice deep breath, not something that's tense or bringing too much tension in your body, but a nice, relaxed, slow, deep breath. That's it. That's it. And before I forget, I don't want to leave this out. Taking a deep breath. I know you mentioned that there's an app where you are a meditation teacher and others. It's the app that you haven't, the meditation app that you probably haven't heard of is the way you described it. Do you want to take a minute here and just talk a little bit about that and let our listeners know where they can find that? Yeah, a few years ago, from a design perspective, I was lucky enough to get involved with what we mentioned earlier, Dr. Richie Davidson, who was the progenitor of that sports metaphor. And he runs probably the leading neuroscience laboratory studying the effects of mindfulness on the brain. And they created an offshoot nonprofit to try to take their findings of the lab out into the world. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky to come in there as a designer at first to help the design team like think through the user experience of the app to make sure it's easy to use and understand. I really just planted a seed there. The team over there has done the really heavy lifting and making that design as great as it is today. But we put out an app called the Healthy Minds Program. And as a part of that design, I started working with Cords, who's the main teacher over there, on working on some of the content. And so as that started to grow, I started to, to contribute more and more and become one of the teachers within the app. And like I said, download 12 apps, try them all. They're not all a fit for everyone, but if... The idea of a highly secular science-based mindfulness program that expands more than just paying attention to your breath, but like explores areas in connection and isolation, areas of insight and purpose in life, as well as awareness. Uh, and you like the idea of that being interspersed with podcasts where you learn some of the science might be worth a try. And I think the most amazing part is that Healthy Minds Innovations is a nonprofit, and thanks to our supporters, the app is entirely free. You'll never get asked to subscribe. You'll never get asked to like pay this money to like get access to the content. It's all up for you to use and generate, you know, your own well-being with. And I hope I hope it helps someone out there. I know it's helping a lot of people already. And honestly, I can tell you personally, almost every morning I take a look at our little feed of reviews of that app, and it's something that keeps my fire burning in terms of this work, just to see. Every morning, a few lives are changing from yes. some of the work that we're working on. And that just kind of keeps me going. That's amazing. So, so you're saying there's no subscription anxiety with that app. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. 
And also, I will also put a link to your website as well if anybody wanted to get a hold of you or learn more about you. Is it jvidarthi.com? Is that where they can find you? Yeah, or just Google my name. Pretty yeah. easy. There's lots of stuff there. Okay, wonderful. Jay, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. And hope you have an amazing day. Yeah, thanks, Amin. Take care.